Good afternoon, Andy Chapel. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. It's good to see you again. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me, and it's great to see you again. I'd love to uh, start off the episode and talk a little bit about Dairy Field and your new position and, and kind of what this new role at a new school has been like for you so far and maybe some of the reasons why you chose to leave Roxbury Latin after a long time, an awesome school, um, to, to take on this new venture at Dairy Field. Yeah, that's, those are those are everyone's questions and they're good questions. They were my questions as well. Um, you know, I think I'll, I'll first start with Dairyfield. Um, I, you know, so excited to have an opportunity to lead a school and a school that I knew a little bit about. The backstory is that my wife went to school here, graduated in 1993. And so when I met her in 1997, that was the first time I had heard about Dairyfield and her experience here. And she had had a, a great experience. Uh, it's a small world uh, story in the sense that her father was actually the head of school here in the 80s and early 90s. And, and so there, there also was this historical knowledge of the school and of the people of the school. Um, and as we know in schools, I'm sure Gilman's the same, Roxbury Latin is the same. There um, is just a, a strong group of people who, you know, teachers, staff members who have been here for a long time, who who really dedicated their lives to this institution and made it made it what it was. And so when, you know, I saw that the opportunity was available, it, it was it really for our whole family, my wife and my daughter and my son and I, a no brainer in terms of, wow, this is a great leadership opportunity. It's a school that we know. It's in New England, which is often difficult for someone who wants to seek a head's role to stay in New England. You often, you know, you hear stories, of people having to leave typically. Um, and and so all of the stars aligned in that way. Um, and and the and the big question is, you know, why after 25 years at Roxbury Latin would you would you leave? And um, it, it's a terrific question. Roxbury Latin is a place that really allowed me to grow up professionally and personally. Um, gave me lots of opportunities, starting with Tony Jarvis, who was the head headmaster at the time, who hired me initially, and then when he retired, Carrie Brennan who's been there for the past 19 years, um, really, really allowed me to blossom and grow and give me different opportunities to learn how schools work, um, how to lead schools, you know, put me in the right places to have the right conversations. And so re really feel fortunate to have a number of mentors who allowed me to grow with the idea that one day I would hopefully get an opportunity to lead a school and uh, was really encouraged to do that. And, and so you know, why Dairyfield, family connections, knowledge of the school, New England, and uh, why leave Roxbury Latin? Certainly didn't leave Roxbury Latin because I wanted necessarily to leave Roxbury Latin, but it was always uh, in the past couple of years, the idea that, you know, it's time, you know, to to spread my wings and have a chance to lead a school. And, and with Carrie Brennan's support and my family's support, here I am. So very happy to be here. Love it. Love it. Um, I actually read a little bit of Carrie Brennan's note when you were leaving I think that's published online and you know he had a lot of great things to say about you and I learned a little bit more about what you were doing at Roxbury Latin over those 25 years there uh, one thing that stands out to me that I want to talk to you about today is that Roxbury Latin was founded in what 16 for, early 16, 1645 1645 and Dairyfield in 1964 and I'm right. I'm so curious about just going from a school with so much tradition and history to a fairly you know new school that's much different and what that transit transition has been like for you. 
Yeah, that it, it's a terrific question. One of the things that I loved about Roxbury Latin is even though it was founded in 1645 and had this this deep sense of history, and in my background being a classicist and religious studies major in college and having uh, taught Latin and Greek for a number of years, you know, I loved being in a school where history and language was was so important to that community. But the other thing that I loved about Roxbury Latin was um, a, a true desire to innovate, a true desire to get better. And and we would often talk about, you know, the idea that, um, you know, school had been around a long time. It had really good systems and lots of great things going on. But, you know, one of the things that Kerry Brennan and, and Tony Jarvis before him uh, were, were often asking is how can we how can we do this better? How can we improve um, how can we serve in that in that particular school, the boys, you know, because it's an all boys school, how can we serve the boys and fulfill the mission of this school better than we do today? And so that was a question we always had on our minds in a school where one could argue maybe you didn't really need to ask those questions because it was run so well and had such a great reputation. But I think that was the reason that is the reason, right, why Roxbury Latin is revered so much by people, because that question is always asked. So, you know, for me, looking at Dairyfield, which is a much younger school um, by, you know, a good 320 years, uh, the the I actually saw the stars align in the sense that, you know, Dairyfield is a place that has its own really impressive young history of 60 years, just about um, lots of wonderful things that have happened. Lots of great stories to tell from the founding of the school until today. Um and again, because of my family's connection to the school, knowing that 30, 40 years ago, imagining the conversations that were happening then about what the school would look like 30 or 40 years from today. And so when I come here, both because of my training at Roxbury Latin, where you 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 were often thinking in decades and in centuries rather than in just the next year and the impact that the school could have both on the students who were there and the faculty and staff, but also on the community. Um, bringing that vision to a younger school and and a school that tends to be, um, you know, as most younger schools do, really thinking year to year, like, you know, we need to be successful next year or maybe in two years, having that longer term, broader vision of around financial sustainability, uh, you know, creating really uh, rich programming, which which existed here, um, and yet also a hunger to continue to refine that and, and make it better, right? So the same mindset that I grew up with at Roxbury Latin, applying that here was really very easy because it, it also very much existed here, that innovative entrepreneurial mindset. And so that piece for me was, it was such an easy shoe to put on. It fit really well. And and felt good to me as I began to have conversations about, you know, where was Dairyfield? What what were they thinking about? Is this a place that has a growth mindset or are they kind of content with where they are? Um, and and there was very much a, you know, no, we are we are so eager to get better uh and and doing that year to year, but also really thinking long term about what the future of the school looks like. So for me, all of that came together nicely. So coming into the role of head of school. Um, from Roxbury Latin coming to Dairy Field, I'm sure that that's so exciting that you have, you know, new people to work with, a new vision to to try to implement at the school, new colleagues, but also sort of daunting because it's you know it's it's all brand new and you know you're used to what you're used to at Roxbury Latin, but now you have so many opportunities and a lot of agency as a school leader. Um, what is kind of, like what is kind of your vision for? For Dairyfield in the near future, in the long future, what do you what do you want to do there? 
Well, that's a question that lots of people would like the answer to. And I, I've been very careful uh, in this first year to take my time with that. Um, you know, there's certain things that, you know, from the beginning aligned in terms of the, the, the mission, vision and values of the school aligning with my own personal mission, vision and values. So that, that stuff was easy core values around community and kindness and caring. And, you know, just so for me and our core value that we elevated this year was community, um, coming out of the pandemic, a lot of things have been disrupted, which is true for all schools, really wanting to think intentionally about how we build community here, what that looks like. Um, how do we do it? How have we done it? How should we do it? And and really thinking about that. And so throughout the year, um, you know, at different very important moments, we've leaned into that. Um, but for the most part, I've spent a lot of time thinking about and and watching and observing and and taking an input around you know what has been done here, how it's been done, uh, you know, everything from the academic program to the you know facilities. Uh, we're in the middle of building a new dining commons, a new facility. That's that's a good challenge and good opportunity that I walked into as uh, the, the head of school here. Uh, and, and so, you know, thinking about all of that and how it fits together with, with what this community wants to be and what it wants to become, uh, because it has such a solid and wonderful foundation. The, the preceding head of school, Mary Halpin Carter, who's now at St. Luke's in New Canaan, Connecticut, over her nine years here really helped this help help to elevate this school to new heights and and Dairyfield owes so much to her and her leadership and, and the leadership team that still exists here. So for me, it's really taking that vision and molding and shaping it, you know, a little bit to my personality, but also to everyone's personality and everyone's collaborative vision about what this school can become over time. And so there are two two things for me, Jake, in helping me to develop that vision, which are really important. Number one, we're in the middle of an accreditation year. So we're doing a self-study as a school. A lot of the work for me of listening and observing is happening organically because of that process. And I'm sure Gilman has a similar process that they go through maybe every five or 10 years. Uh, so Dairyfield's doing that this year. And we're also in the fourth of the fifth year of a strategic plan that had been established a number of years ago. And uh, so the timing is right to really develop that vision collaboratively. And we're well on our way doing that, you know? And, um, you know, one of the great lessons I learned from a mentor of mine is not to be impatient, you know? Um, you don't need a vision in October or even in February, uh, but you certainly do need one as you head into your second year and your third year and your fourth year. And um, so, you know, I learn more, I collect more data points every day. I have great conversations with uh, a wide variety of people to really think about how that vision will develop as we move forward. Awesome. Yeah. I, I'd love to know also a little bit more about just what the school is like. I know it's co-ed. I know it's in Manchester, New Hampshire. You told me that there's a, there's some snow on the ground. I'm sure it's cold right now. Um, but, you know, what is kind of the school life on the day to day? Like, what are some things that you see when you walk around campus? What is the structure of the school like? Just maybe a little bit more about Dairyfield as a place would be helpful. Just trying to imagine or visualize what it's like there. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It, it is one of the things that really attracted me, even having known about it for a long time. But when I began to explore and then visited, and now that I've been here for seven months, it is a truly joyful uh, place. Kids, um, lots of smiles, lots of activity, lots of energy in classrooms, outside of classrooms. 
and a real desire to get involved with one another and to support one another. It's a place where, um, you know, student um, leaning into student support, leaning into student leadership is is really kind of paramount to how things happen here. So there's a lot of I had a meeting with some students in the summer right before I got here. And I asked the question, you know, how have you learned about leadership, you know, at Dairyfield? It seems like you all are really talented student leaders and I've met some other kids. How does that happen? And and I thought they would talk about a program or a class or something that the school offered because we do have some programming around that. But they all talked about how in each of their classes on their teams, you know, in the in the play or, you know, whatever activity they're a part of that adults really allow them to develop as leaders. They really ask them, demand that they be leaders. And then they also support them in, in that leadership. And so one of the things that's magical for me is I just walk around campus is you have students really taking the lead in lots of small and big ways uh, and doing it joyfully. Um, I'll give an example. This week is what we call winter carnival, where we spend the whole week, the students organize it, and it's it is a tip it's tip of the cap to the fact that it's cold it's snow outside we need a little joy at this time of year and so uh the the school is divided up into maroon and white the school colors and uh that's something that happens when you enter the school i'm i'm maroon for instance and um we have lots of activities that happen throughout the week today we had dodgeball so you know during our community meeting where we gather um once a week but this week we gather multiple times there were just multiple competitions of dodgeball, just fun, you know, lots of good music, people laughing, having a great time. And that really permeates, you know, throughout the school lunch uh, to classrooms to, you know, sports after school. So that vibe is, is I think, really compelling. When people come to visit here, they they pick up on it, they, they note it, and they really enjoy and appreciate it. But I would say that it has a lot to do with the students taking the lead. Mm -hmm. which is which is really impressive and i think unique and distinctive about this institution i like it a lot yeah that um just really reminds me of gilman too and the ways that we've tried to foster community especially after the pandemic because it was so hard during that time that's really when we started this podcast because i personally was missing having conversations with people and connecting with other people but you know, community building can be so simple as to do a pickleball, you know, pickleball night or a dodgeball game or, you know, have lunch with each other. And it's so important at a school that people have that chance to, you know, just talk to each other and get to know each other. And um, yeah. I like that aim, for, especially as a new, you know, leader at a school to focus on community. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, it's something that was true at Roxbury Latin. I think it's true at Gilman, uh, a strong sense of support of one another, um, a number of different rituals and traditions that are kind of part of the school. I noted here, Winter Carnival. I'm sure you have similar rituals or, or different traditions at Gilman certainly were true at Roxbury Latin. And so uh, for me, it's, it's uh, as someone noted to me recently, it's being intentional about building community. I think there are a number of leaders who just think it kind of happens organically and it does. But you also, in my view, have to be very intentional about leaning into those rituals that exist in a school in order to build that community, in order to set the tone in terms of what you hope the school, um, you know, will feel like and look like and, and how people will interact with one another. So something else that I, I think about when I think about you is is mentorship, because we got to know each other through the Penn Fellowship Program that, you know, you worked very closely with at 
of Roxbury Latin and um, and we had here. That's why I got to Gilman is I, I did that program a couple of years ago. Um, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your own mentorship and the way that you I know that you graduated for, from Virginia and went right to Roxbury Latin and maybe some of the ways that you were mentored and learned about mentorship when you were a young teacher, young faculty member uh, at Roxbury Latin. That's a great, great question. Um, I think this is an area, uh, first of all, I'll start. I was very fortunate to be mentored by a number of people, as you can imagine, when I got to Roxbury Latin, most of them teachers, staff members, uh, but even the head of school, uh, the headmaster, Tony Jarvis, he uh, really took me under his wing early on on and and was so helpful to me in in so many different ways everything from let's sit down and talk about writing comments and advisor letters and kind of what the essence of that looks like and and helpful in that way but but also just so much wisdom about uh, running a school and working with kids and uh those who don't know tony jarvis he he was uh, an episcopal priest as well as a as a headmaster and he and he wore these two hats, and he he did them in a way that I I always admired that he could tend to a parish and also run a school, and he had support tending to a parish, and he also had support running a school. But he it was my first glimpse at mentorship that had to do with um, being very pastoral, and uh, recognizing that in leadership so much of it is about. Uh, supporting people, mentoring people, um, helping them to develop whatever skills they need to develop in that moment, you know. And so at age 23, it was there were certain skills I needed versus what I needed when I was 30. Um, and so he he was critical. But there were other colleagues of mine in, in the classics department, Jack Brennan, Ned Ligon, two um, legendary teachers at Roxbury Latin who were there for a long time, who uh, you reminded me that humor was so important to what I did each day with my work with students, but also work with colleagues, uh, but also substance and and the substance of uh, students recognizing that they won't respect you until they understand that you're you're a good teacher and that uh, you know what you're both talking about, but that you also have the the skills you need to be successful in the classroom. And they really helped to develop that in me and to help me with that. Um, you know, the other part of my story is that I met my wife in the very first year I started at Roxbury Latin. She was there as well. And we had a mentorship of a different type in the, in the sense that we had a support group with, with each other mm-hmm. uh, as we kind of worked our way through being young teachers and, and what all that looks like and, and some of the really bright moments and also some of the, the other moments that were that were a struggle. Um, but I would also say, Jake, that for me, um, and, and this has always been true, you know, my parents, both my father and my mother, my father, who's now passed away, he was an educator in Virginia, public school educator, um, ended his time as a superintendent of public schools in uh, Rappahannock, Virginia, started as a guidance counselor at an all black uh, high school uh, as for his first job when schools were segregated um, way back in the day. And my mother, who was a social worker, and and both of them taught me from a very early age that you know every human being deserves your respect and your dignity, and um, and so as I you know started to get settled at Roxbury Latin and teaching and working with colleagues and doing admission work and coaching and doing all these different things that I I always had their lessons and always had their advice that I could lean on outside of the institution as, as a help to me, which I was always grateful for. 
Um, and then over time, you know, obviously, you know, people beyond Roxbury Latin uh, at, at other schools. And as you mentioned, the Penn Fellows Program for me, as I'm sure it was for you too, just having so many different mentors from all the different schools that are part of that program, uh, able to share ideas, uh, give advice, get advice, uh, share war stories. Uh, it just, you know, you learned a lot from, from people on a peer-to-peer level that, that has been so helpful to me. Yeah, I agree with that. I would say, you know, of all the things that I took from the Penn Fellowship program as a really early on right out of college teacher, you know, I had great mentorship here at Gilman through that program. But the most important thing that I think I got out of it was just meeting some of the advisors and the faculty members and the mentors from other schools and the fellows from other schools and learning from them through conversation like you know meeting you and I've got Eric Cooper who I might have on on a podcast episode and you know so many people that I just learned from conversation with and community really through that program yep yeah and what I would add to that just to fast forward rewind why I was so excited to get involved in that when Carrie Brennan, who also was just an incredible, has been, continues to be an incredible mentor for me and, and supporter of me, when he brought to my attention that we had the opportunity to be a part of the Penn Fellows Program, um, you know, my initial reaction was, wow, you know, like this is something I wish I would have had when I was a young teacher. I was so grateful for the mentorship I received. But this is at a whole other level, you know, where you have the in-school support, but you do have this other network of people, other fellows, other advisors, you know, professors at Penn that uh, just was, it was so exciting to me. So it was very personal, actually, getting involved in that program and wanting to give back uh, in a way that people had given to me over time and, and, and trying to share what knowledge, what wisdom had been passed along to me in my early time, but doing that in a, in a larger way because of the, the structure of the Penn program. I would love to know a little bit more about Kerry Brennan. I've met him once before, but maybe a little bit about his leadership style and why he's really been so successful at Roxbury Latin and, and really served as a mentor figure and, and friend and colleague for you as you're, you know, you're getting ready to become a head of school yourself. Yeah, Kerry is again his background is he taught at Roxbury Latin a long time ago he then uh, decided that he would leave and he headed the university school in in Cleveland Ohio and was the lower school director upper school director there and then made his way to collegiate school in New York City to be the head before he ended up at Roxbury Latin and so um, when he returned to Roxbury Latin I'm sort of seven years into my teaching career and and immediately I think to his credit both with me and with others he realized that the future of the school uh, rested in some of the younger colleagues who would outlast some of the people that he had started, you know, working with many, many years before they were they would retire right over the time over his leadership time there. And so I think first and foremost with Kerry, he's someone who really invests in people and understands and, and tries to help them, uh, you know, figure out what it is that they want to do, but also pushes you to try to be maybe something that you don't even imagine you could be. And so there there were very much moments for me with Kerry where uh, he would say, uh, you know, what do you think about doing this? And I would say, I don't know so much about that. I don't not not sure that would be the right thing for me. And he would and he would say, well, here's what it will do for you. And in other words, he was a great convincer of why one should do this or do that in order to grow and to and and to learn more and to continue to develop as an educator and as a leader. 
So, um, you know, he, he has this, um, I think, terrific ability to understand people and understand what people need. Doesn't mean he understands everybody perfectly, but, you know, he he's really invested in that. And I think that says a lot about a leader. And it's a great lesson for me uh, to, to carry on, right? Uh, to be very interested and curious about how people want to grow, how they want to learn, um, and then putting them in the right positions to do that very thing, right? Whether it's some professional development opportunity or it's just getting them involved in, in some part of the school that will allow them to develop that skill. And so I think, you know, I really would say that, that that's one of Kerry's greatest strengths, his sort of curiosity about individual people and how they may or may not want to grow. And then if he sees something you don't, really making some good recommendations to you about how you can do that um, and going from there. And then beyond that, he is, um, you know, as you said, he's been a very good friend to me. He's been incredibly supportive in, in good times and in bad um, very even keeled in in terms of you know providing that very important support that you need from a leader you know in in times both professionally and personally uh, when you need it um, and so you know he and I have a great friendship and keep in touch as as I continue to get settled here and learn the ropes of being ahead of school. That's great. Um, yeah, Roxbury Latin. I've never been to the school itself, but some of my friends that went there that I know really well, Rob Shaw and Chris Rhoda and some other guys that I have spent a lot of time with are some of the most impressive kids that, that I know, you know, and I feel like there's something in the formula at Roxbury Latin that produces these really impressive and um, smart and accomplished type of students. Um, and, and from your perspective, what is really the formula at that school that I'm sure you're, you know, you're thinking about and carrying with you as you enter this new role at Dairyfield, but what was it at Roxbury Latin that really produces such impressive young men? Yeah, that, that, that is the million dollar question, I guess, you know, about every institution. And, and I don't in any way think that Roxbury Latin has the corner on the market on that. I think, I think similar uh, ingredients exist here at Dairyfield. I'm sure they do at Gilman as well. Um, I think what was successful at Roxbury Latin, at least from my experience being there, was the emphasis put on 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 relationships and how those relationships would allow someone to to become the Chris Rhoda, the Rob Shaws, you know that that you would meet, right? So a real, I guess, a, if I were to point to a structural piece about Roxbury Latin that's unique, one of the pieces that I I I, I always hold up. Um, is the advisory program there. Most advisory programs at schools, and I, I don't know what it's like at Gilman, but it is here. It's it's a group advisory, right? We meet once a week. We spend time together as a group. Uh, we met this morning, actually, and it, and it was great. We had a great time as a group. Roxbury Latin has a very different model. You meet with your advisees one-on-one roughly once a week. So the relationship you form, and Chris Rhoda was a was an advisee of mine, as you know. Um, you know, Chris and I met once a week, every week for six years. And by the time, you know, he graduated from Roxbury Latin and, and still after, he and I keep in touch quite a bit. You know, that that relationship allowed him to grow and mature and to become, you know, the young man that he is, not just because of our relationship, but because of the relationships he then forms with other adults and other kids in really meaningful ways. And so I think it's it's a, it's sort of a magical element of recognizing that relationships are important, that you need to be intentional about them, 
and that they then build and multiply in order to help you to grow, to become the person you want to be, right? The athlete you want to be, the student you want to be, the actor you want to be, you know, whatever it is that you want to be. Um, and there's there's such a priority placed on that at Roxbury Latin, because what I just described to you is that's an investment, right? That one-on-one relationship once a week, that's an investment that you make as an institution. You're asking the adults in the school and the students to set aside a certain amount of time every week to build that relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes that unique. That's why most schools, of course, have a group advisory program, because it's it's difficult to prioritize you know, that commitment. Yeah. So for me, that's a really critical part of, of how they do that. Yeah. Very similar here at Gilman. I've got 11 advisees and actually yesterday just had parent conferences with, with all their parents. And, um, I think that's one of the best things we do here at Gilman is the advisory program. We meet once, once a week, usually not always because we have assemblies and other types of, you know, student meetings during that time period. But I think I've just seen in my advisory the way that they've grown over this, even this year, you know, they're all involved in different areas and they've become closer and friends with each other and I've become closer with them. So I think that really is a critical part of the whole community building aspect to a school that we're talking about. Right. Yeah. And, and so one of the pieces that I'm interested in here is I also have really grown to appreciate the group advisory model. You know, there's something to really take away from being together in community in that way to have a smaller community. And I've really enjoyed that and and feel like that was something that was missing from a Roxbury Latin advisory moment. Um, And yet I also long for and really work in those individual meetings um, throughout the year because they, they allow me really get to know kids a little bit differently than in that group setting. So in an ideal world, I think it's all of it, of course, right? It's sort of having those group meetings, having those individual meetings. But I think it's truly that um, along with an emphasis placed on core values like character and asking asking young people uh, to be the best they can be on a consistent, regular basis and setting expectations for them, right? And so that that for me was certainly true at Roxbury Latin. I already see it in spades here at, at Dairyfield, and and I'm proud to be part of a community that that believes in that and believes in how that can tra- translate and transform a young person's life. So, so something else that I want to ask you about is, you know, it feels like in 2023, just getting over the, c- the COVID pandemic and we're back in school, it just seems like such a, you know, important period of time, and we're almost this period of time we're living through history, like a wild moment in history almost. And we've got, you know, we got the phones and technology and all of these different things at our fingertips. We're talking about chat GPT the other day in the English department. You know, we've got a lot of concerns with mental health right now amongst students. Um, And just from your perspective, as we're kind of on the brink of the future, it feels like in a lot of ways, what really concerns you about you know, the direction we're heading or, or technology right now um, for young people at our schools? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I feel like that's a question we've been asking for a while now, right, Jake? I mean, when I first, uh, first teaching job at, at Roxbury Latin, we had computer camp. That was the first, that was my first introduction to the school. And so I think about this a lot because that, that reminds me that, you know, throughout time, I think we've been in this, dilemma 
um, not necessarily a problem, you know, that needs to be solved. People talk a lot about, you know, it's a dilemma. It's, it's not going anywhere. It, it's here. We all use it. Um, and, and so it, I, I try not to spend too much time being concerned as much as trying to think about how can we harness the power of, of this tool that we have, just like we might harness the power of a calculator or some other piece of technology in positive and good ways. And so, you know, let, I'll take chat GPT for a minute and I'm not the first person to say this, but you know, th that's not, that's not only not going to go away, it's just going to get better and better. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I think the challenge we have as educators is to figure out how to use that tool responsibly and how to teach kids how to use that tool responsibly. Um, and, and uh, you know, what's the alternative? We turn our back to it and act like it doesn't exist and the kids will use it anyway, right? So I think it's our job to try to be creative and work it into what we're doing and how we do things while at the same time lamenting that we're losing, we're losing something that you and I, you know, didn't have and therefore we grew up differently and had a different experience. I just don't feel that it's, 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 super helpful to spend a lot of time lamenting the the olden days and you know how things were and more trying to figure out this is this is the, the students we this is their world this is the world they're going to live in and continue to live in so i think it's trying to find those eternal lessons that that have always been true as as we've seen revolution after revolution after revolution and applying that uh to our mission as schools right whatever your mission is and really thinking about how we integrate that rather than just trying to keep it out. And I know that's hard and it doesn't, you know, it's not easy, but mm -hmm. we're doing the same thing that you're doing. I think the first step is just to even understand what the tool is, what the power of it is. And then to also ask ourselves, are there ways in which we can do things more efficiently because of the tool, right? As an institution. And I think those are, those are like exciting conversations to have while we're also concerned about how we teach kids how to use these tools responsibly. Um, so I, I'm less concerned and more excited, honestly, in thinking about how to integrate these tools for our students who are their 21st century citizens. I know we throw those words around a lot, but I mean, they are. Mm -hmm. And it's their world. It wasn't my world, but it's their world. And so it's our, our job, I think, right, to really work with them, to build those relationships and teach those lessons about how to use those things responsibly. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer because, you know, I've been thinking about the chat GPT question because I've really, I, I've enjoyed messing around with it and helping it generate ideas. And even as a teacher, you know, you need a lesson plan and you want some ideas. Why not? You know, it's right there at your fingertips. It's not like you could pretend that it doesn't exist. It's almost like pretending Google doesn't exist and it will continue to develop and continue to get better. And I think you're exactly right. It's just thinking of ways to integrate it into our educational philosophies to make life better and easier, more efficient, you know, and maybe save some time in a lot of ways. Well, I think that's been the paradox, right? Cause that's been the, the, it's almost like the, the false sales pitch that I feel like we've heard for a long time now. Oh, technology will actually make your life simpler, more efficient, easier. It has, right? right? I mean, at the end of the day, it just, I mean, it has in some very specific ways, but for the most part, I think we'd all agree it's just made our life more complicated. It takes more of our time because we get, you know, dialed into other things that are part of it. So it, it is that it's that false assumption around it that, I, that I've struggled with for many years now. And yet, like you, here we are on Zoom 
doing a podcast together. I mean, here's the power of it, right? Having a conversation, continuing to build a relationship that you and I have, harnessing the good, the power of it, you know, for, for, you know, everything that, that you hope, right. You could get out of a tool like this. So, yeah, I, I think you could say the same thing about really, you know, a lot of the things that are popular today, social media, for example, I don't really like social media that much because it takes a lot of time and you've got to keep up with people and the fear of missing out thing is real. Like you look at all of everything else people are doing and all the impressive things everyone else is doing. And I don't think that's healthy all the time. But then again, like when I want to tell people that I did a podcast with Andy, Andy Chapel, no one's going to know about it unless I post something about it. Right. So um, it's a double-edged sword and it's just the, the way it is. And there are a lot of really good things about these tools, but a lot of negatives right. to them too. That's true. And, and I think to that regard, just to kind of come back to your original question, I, I, I also don't think we can turn a blind eye to the, to the challenges that come with it. Right. And, and I think we, I have found that the, the best way to do that with both adults and kids, quite honestly, is to, is to dial into some of the research and to make sure that we're not speaking anecdotally about things, but we're actually talking about hard facts mm-hmm. and the impact that social media has on an adult or on a kid. Is it different? Is it the same? You know, is it generational? Is it not? And when I've been a part of those conversations and those presentations and those discussions, I, I you see minds being changed. And I, I think that's where, you know, we need to focus our attention because there are some very real serious challenges around the technology and so we can't also turn a blind eye to it and we need to educate and help back to the mental health question help especially young people but also people like us right to manage uh all of that and how it impacts us on a health in, in a health perspective mm-hmm. um so so a question for you about these conversations and current events really when you're a school leader is there is there a certain you know, um, method of acquiring, I guess, a broad understanding of these issues that you look to on a daily basis, just to educate your, your, yourself about, you know, chat GPT and social media. Like, do you, do you read the newspaper every day? Do you go to a certain website to read about things that are happening in the world? Like, what is your, I guess, daily, um, habit of thinking about these different issues that you face and, 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 deal with as an educator? That's a great question. So I, I, I actually approach this in a couple of different ways. Number one, I do read uh, the, lo- especially since I'm new to this area, I read two local newspapers, the Manchester Union Leader and also Concord, New Hampshire is just up the road. So I read the Concord Daily Paper. And so I read those religiously every day for both local news, but there's also national news there. And the people will tell you in this area that they, they bring two different perspectives to their you know, to their newspaper writing, which which I find fascinating and interesting. So that that's one area where I get, you know, my sources from. I am a little old fashioned that I really enjoy watching nightly news every night, sort of a holdover from my youth um, and recognizing that that's imperfect and slanted and, you know, whatnot. But it's, it's helpful for me just to have a quick 20 minute snapshot of what's going on in the world. Um, and then beyond that, I, I also so use modern tools like Twitter and and others that I, I find really helpful. Um, I think if you can cut through some of the the nonsense and really get you know to various things that are being promoted through either Twitter or Instagram, uh, I tend to learn a lot 
uh, when I can just sit for, and I try to really limit my time. I don't sit there for hours. I don't have hours to do it, but I, you know, I take five, 10 minutes and just scan for things that are clearly going on and that are interesting. Um, and then the third piece, which uh, I really developed with the help of some friends is um, to take some time on a regular basis. It, it, it typically is, you know, once a month, I wish it were more, but there's only so much time in a day in a month to get together with people who want to just talk about interesting topics. And I have a colleague that I used to work with at Roxbury Latin. We touch base uh, a pretty regular basis. And uh, he always called those, this is another mentor moment. He, he shared this with me a few years ago that he has these, what he calls stir the pot moments where he takes an hour of time and he either gets together with other people or he just with himself takes, you know, sets aside an hour, reads something uh, that he's wanted to read because it popped up somewhere or, um, you know, someone's recommended it to him or he just gets together with a few friends and says, what are you thinking about? What have you been reading? What do you, what do you, um, you know, what's on your mind? What seems interesting to you? And in those moments, um, I find those to just be so great to be able to connect with other people if that's the mode that I choose or even just to say, hey, I'm just going to take an hour and I'm going to read something that I've not been able to read for the last, you know, couple of weeks. Um, and and then the final piece that I, I do feel is important is, is to read. I, I read every night for at least a half an hour. And again, that was advice from a, a French teacher at Roxbury Latin when I was maybe 24 years old. And he pulled me aside. We were coaching football and he said, he said, Andy, do you read every night? And I said, no, I don't, I don't read every night. I'm, I'm just trying to stay alive and grade papers and you know, yeah. come in the next. And he said, you have to read every night. And I said, okay. And he was so wise and you know, I respected him so much. I said, okay, I'll try it. And, you know, I did it for a while and then I fell out of it. And, but now I do it religiously every night I read, you know, for a half an hour, uh, I could have a million other things to do, but um, I just think it's really important to take yourself out of whatever you're doing. And I tend to try to read fiction just to get myself in a whole other world. But I also will read things that are compelling to me and and that I want to read in that moment. So that's that's, I guess, four different ways that I try to stay up on all kinds of different topics and, and also to keep myself healthy and fresh and, you know, new ideas in my mind. I like that a lot. I like the 30 minute um, reading per night. My sister is in seventh grade right now. And uh, my parents, they've got their hands full with two dogs and Jenny back home. Uh, but my dad's biggest thing is, Jenny, it's reading time. You've got to do an hour. I think it's an hour for her, which is good, which is impressive. I don't know if I believe that, but an hour of reading every night and they sit there and they do it. And I think it's just such a good habit because in a way it is Regardless of what you're reading, it's a form of meditation too, and just stepping back and recollecting and and dipping your your mind into a new environment for a little bit of time. I like that. Couldn't agree more. And I, I, you know, he's not with us anymore. But Ken Kahn, who was a legendary French teacher at Roxbury Latin, that was his advice to me, which I've stuck with, you know, to this day. So this might be a good time of uh, asking you about your book recommendation or anything that you've really read recently or just in your life that made a, a big impact on you that maybe you still think about right now such a it's such a good question and and i i could give so many different answers i and if it's okay i'll actually give a couple that's the great. one that always comes back to me in terms of just from a professional level that had a profound impact on me was a book called legacy by james kirk 
Sure. And um, for those who don't know, he he tells the story of the All Blacks rugby team in New Zealand and uh, and sort of what the culture of that particular organization, not just the team, but the organization looks like. And and there there I think are just eternal lessons in that in that book about leadership and about culture and um, and just good storytelling that that happened there. Um, I I also, uh, you know, from a fiction point of view, you know, I, I'm a sucker for things like The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna, which I thought was just a wonderful historical fictional account of, you know, that time uh, to also, you know, Where the Crawdads Sing, which I thought was a fantastic reminder to me of my Southern roots and and sort of the interesting um idea of getting into a, a little girl's mind, right, who's living in the wilderness and, and trying to figure out what life looks like and what's important to her. So um, and then the final one that I would share that, again, to bring it back to the kind of the more professional piece, but also the personal piece is the power of moments. And it really talks about uh, in that text written by two brothers has to do with um, both as educators, but also just as people, how there are these moments in our lives and it's obvious to us, right, that have such a profound impact on us, create a sense of awe that um, I think both personally and professionally are really important to be intentional about those moments, uh, to not let them slip by, to not forget them, and to let people know when you're in those moments. Um, and, and I think about a lot a lot of the lessons in that text from an educational point of view, um, in thinking about classroom settings and trying to create moments, right? Um, there's a lot of practice that happens, so to speak, to use an athletic, you know, uh, metaphor there, but there's a lot of practice that happens in classrooms, but really thinking about the moments, right? The performative moments and the impact that they have on a, a student's mastery of knowledge, but also their memory of that course and what they're getting out of that course and, and the, and the material that they're learning. So, that that text I would just throw in there at the very end has has really changed my thinking about what teaching looks like and and also what building school uh, culture and community looks like. I like that a lot, and I was thinking about something similar. I haven't read The Power of Moments, but you know I was reading. I had my students the other day write to me about just how the second semester is going so far, and one moment in class that is either their proudest moment or most memorable moment so far. And it's just so interesting to me to see all of the different things that they thought were important or significant to them that I wouldn't have known. You know, it's like one student was thinking about when she had to read her personal essay, you know, at the beginning of the semester. One person was thinking about one quotation that he keeps thinking about in the book that we're reading. And I think that's so cool because all of the students have different moments that stand out to them that they're going to remember. And I might not even even see that, you know, as, as the teacher, it's just, it's important to them. Yeah. I, I, that's such a great observation, Jake, because I'm, I'm, I'm consistently blown away when, when a former student shares a story with me at a reunion or I just see them somewhere. And, and I think to myself, I, I don't even remember that that happened, you know, Um, but for, but for them, it was just this pivotal moment for them that they'll never forget. Um, and and really solidified something for them, and that's what made it memorable, right? And so that that power again of that moment, and and it it is an interesting idea as an educator. Those, as you just noted, they happen all the time, and and um, I think that's 
So I often think, I think it's one of the beautiful things about being an educator. You can get frustrated by feeling like you're missing all those moments, or you can feel good about the fact that kids are having moments with you and with other kids that will be memorable for a lifetime and that you're making that impact on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and and I, you have that, have that same feeling growing up as I did. So, right. Yeah. And I think about, you know, I think about m my teachers in high school and I couldn't tell you the books really. I could, I could probably tell you a few of the books that we read or some of the units that we did, but I don't really remember them that much. But I remember when Miss Shepard, my 11th grade English teacher, asked me, hey, you seem like you're interested in, in The New Yorker. I've got a bunch of old copies of The New Yorker, and you can have them. And I remember such a weird moment, and she has no idea that I remember that. Or my fifth grade English teacher who said, hey, you're, you know, you're pretty good at writing. And that could have totally shifted my trajectory, just her saying that one day after class. And I have, you know, she has no idea that she said that. And I remember it every day almost. So it's kind of yeah. cool. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I think we all have, you know, you could tell me many more and I could tell you many more just moments of, uh, I, again, I think of them almost that there's been research done on the sense of all, right. You're in a, you know, you're looking at the grand Canyon and there's a sense of all, I think it also all can happen in very small moments like you're describing and, and I'm thinking about, and, uh, they're so formative, right. They, they really help young people as well as adults kind of continue to move through their life. They give us confidence. They also can be damaging too. I guess that's the other thing we should talk about, but you know, those, you can also have moments that really don't help a young person or, or an adult, you know, grow. And so I think being mindful of those moments and, and making sure that um, I, 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 again, spend a lot of time just thinking about how can we make them more intentional uh, while also recognizing that there will be many other moments that I don't even know are happening. Mm -hmm. but they're happening for somebody else. Um, and that's okay. Um, and, and, and we'll learn from that and, and move on. Yeah. Really interesting. Uh, you know, part of education is those moments. So I like that book recommendation. I'll have to check it out. Thank you. And the other ones as well. Um, and then the other thing, Andy, I just wanted to tell you that I'm headed down to Virginia, uh, university of Virginia in a couple of weeks to see Harvard play Virginia and lacrosse. I think it's Virginia's maybe third game of the season or fourth game and Harvard's first game. So hopefully it's not too much of a bloodbath, but I'm excited to spend some time in Charlottesville and, and walk around campus a little bit. Well, yeah, I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. Head down to the corner and check out the shops and, and, uh, and obviously the lawn. You, you'll enjoy that Jake a lot, I'm sure. And I, I wish your, your Harvard uh, team, well, but you know, we'll see how that turns out. I don't, I don't know how UVA is looking this year. As you know, I'm a baseball guy for the most part, but I, I do follow Virginia Lacks as well. So have fun with that. Yeah. Excited to, you know, spend some time in that town. It's a great town. And, um, um, so it'll be fun, but Andy, it's great to reconnect with you. I'm, I'm really happy that you're doing well and, uh, you're in a great spot at Dairy Field. And, um, you know, I look forward to keeping in touch you know, as the years go on and, and it's just great to see you again. So thank you very much for uh, spending some time today on the podcast. Well, thank you, Jake. And I'm, you know, I'm so proud of you. I hope you know that it's so great to know that you're in your fifth year there and, and doing well and, and doing this podcast. I think that's, it's so, so important and excellent that you're, you're able to carry on this tradition of relationships and conversations that I know you and I have had, and I know you've had with other people that you've had on your podcast. So keep up the great work and look forward to staying connected. Awesome. Thank you, Andy. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.